This is an ABC podcast. We live in a strange world. Man, is crazy out there. Strange things tend to happen during desperate time. The world has gone mad and the system is broken. Apparently there are people out there, they are like literally beyond comprehension. It is impossible to understand how stupid they are. There's strange stuff happening all over the world. We live in a strange world. 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 Most of us are healthier, wealthier and better educated than ever before. We have greater access to knowledge and expertise than any previous generation. So why do humans keep doing stupid things? Is dumbness our destiny? That's our topic today. And if humanity is getting dumber, what part are highly intelligent people playing in that process? And what can we do to ensure that we don't destroy ourselves on the path to inanity? Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. As would befit a program about stupidity, we're going to employ the listicle. We'll give you five tips for how we, I mean you and I, the super smart, can avoid making the sorts of choices and decisions we would normally sneer at. Our first guest is science writer David Robson, author of the book The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes. And according to David, the first thing we need to do is discard the widely held belief that a high IQ and rationality always go hand in hand. So, tip number one. Our notions of intelligence are highly selective, so we need to rethink our obsession with IQ. Here's David Robson. So, you know, I would say IQ measures uh, ability, maybe at kind of a certain kinds of abstract reasoning that are important in certain professions. But when it comes to things like analysing evidence and thinking about it in a fair kind of even-handed way, or, you know, looking at the news and being able to work out what's true and what's false, what's fake news, actually IQ is really bad at predicting whether people can do that kind of thing. And that's because we have all of these cognitive biases where we rely on our intuitions and kind of our emotions to kind of analyse evidence. And actually having a high IQ just doesn't protect you from those biases at all. And I think we can see that today with the people's reactions to the coronavirus pandemic and all of the kind of misinformation that's flying around about the vaccines there's a big anti-vaccination movement. And actually, a lot of these people are highly intelligent. But you can see that they're actually falling for fraudsters, basically, who don't have the scientific evidence behind their claims. And, And I think that's a real problem, that the kind of intelligence that we've been cultivating at school really hasn't enabled people to kind of think rationally about really important issues within their lives. And what kind of cognitive biases are intelligent people susceptible to? Oh, well, I think the most important one for me is this idea of motivated reasoning. So that's like if you have a kind of hunch or an intuition that something's right, it fits with your overall worldview or your politics, that then you will kind of only look for the information that kind of supports that point of view. And you'll also kind of try to find all of the reasons that you can dismiss any of the evidence that's against your point of view. So, for instance, if you were a kind of COVID denier, you would accept quite happily all of these kind of fraudulent websites and all of their claims, but you wouldn't be listening to the vast majority of scientists who are kind of portraying the risks in a more accurate way. 
Now, the problem here is that actually with motivated reasoning, what you find is that actually more intelligent people are just better at it. You know, they've got that kind of mental agility that lets them rationalize their points of view in a kind of more convincing way to themselves. So what you actually find is that on certain polarized issues, more intelligent people become even more polarized because they're kind of using their intelligence to fuel this motivated reasoning. My name is Kasim Kassam. I'm Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick in the UK. Professor Kassam talks about what he calls knowledge or intellectual vices. So intellectual vices are roughly speaking personal character traits or attitudes or ways of thinking that are intellectually harmful. They make it harder for us to acquire knowledge, harder for us to acquire understanding. Uh, So examples might be arrogance, wishful thinking, closed-mindedness, and a whole lot of other intellectual vices. And part of the point of calling them vices, rather than mere defects or failings, is to imply that the person whose vices they are can be criticized for them or is in some way blameworthy for them. So simply having a bad memory might be bad for you, intellectually speaking, but isn't an intellectual vice because, uh, generally speaking, people can't be blamed for having a bad memory. But arrogance is a different matter. So it's this combination of harmfulness and blameworthiness that makes something an intellectual vice. Uh, Philosophers argue endlessly about whether people with intellectual vices have bad or dubious motives. And there are a lot of philosophers who think that they do. My own view is is, is different from that. So if you think about something like closed-mindedness, I mean, the person who's very closed-minded needn't have bad motives. They might be genuinely interested in knowing the truth. They might be genuinely interested in acquiring understanding of some complex issue. But because they're closed-minded, they have a poor appreciation of uh, perspectives that are different from their own. And that's not because they have bad intentions or bad motives. It's rather just a kind of intellectual character trait of theirs that shapes the way they go about their inquiries and has a negative impact on them. Now, Professor Kassam's work on why so many otherwise clever and grounded people get seduced by nonsense draws in part on a theory that philosopher Harry Frankfurt put forward in the 1980s, the theory of bullshit, which focuses on the nature of lies. Frankfurt's thought is that both the truth-teller and the liar actually care about the truth, in the, in the sense that the truth-teller wants to say things that are true, the liar wants to say things that are not true, but in both cases, what they say is shaped by their apprehension of what is true and what is false. The bullshitter, in Frankfurt's sense, is someone who is indifferent to whether what he says is true or false. He just doesn't care. So he's not particularly interested in telling the truth. He's not particularly interested in telling lies. He is simply bullshitting, that is to say, is indifferent to questions of truth or falsity. So I think that there's a kind of attitude that underpins bullshitting, and I call this attitude epistemic insouciance. So insouciance just means nonchalance or indifference or lack of concern, just not taking things seriously. And someone is epistemically insouciance when in their statements, they reveal that they have no particular concern whether their statements are grounded in reality or the evidence or the facts. They have a kind of couldn't care less attitude. That's what I call epistemic insouciance. And bullshit in Frankfurt's sense, I think, is the product of this attitude. It's the product of epistemic insouciance. Do you think it's more prevalent today than in previous decades? There are certainly 
I think, many examples today of bullshit in politics and perhaps in society more generally. So Frankfurt, in his original article, talked about bullshit in advertising as well as bullshit in politics. There's also, you know, management bullshit, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. So I think there are, you know, kind of many aspects of modern life that encourage or promote the production of bullshit. And we've sort of come to accept it as quite normal. Whether this was true four or five hundred years ago, I mean, I doubt, although one would need to have a bit more evidence to justify the claim that there's more bullshit around today than in the past. There's certainly more visible bullshit around today than in the past. And so tip number two is... Understand the difference between lies and bullshit. So if you think about the arguments over Brexit in the UK, in that case, I think both sides were making claims that were actually bullshit. You know, on the one side, the Brexiters were saying, if we leave the EU, we'll save £350 million a week, which we can give to the NHS. And on the other side, the Remainers were saying that if we leave the EU, it's going to cost each family in the UK £4,000. Now, these were completely, in both cases, completely bogus figures. But nevertheless, you had politicians queuing up to repeat these bogus claims, claims that really didn't have much basis in reality. And when you have this in politics, when you have politicians going around making claims like that, essentially bullshitting and displaying this attitude of epistemic insouciance, then I think what the electorate needs to do is to actually say, hold on a second, is this actually true? Are these figures actually correct? Where do these figures come from? Are they just made up? So, so I think that you know, looking at this from the standpoint of a kind of well-functioning democracy, we need to get to a situation where politicians aren't rewarded for their bullshit. We need to get to a stage when the general public actually holds politicians to account for their bullshit, for their indifference to reality. Does that entail then a greater scepticism within the community about not just the things that we, you know, it's easy to be sceptical about a position you don't agree with, but being more sceptical about positions that we actually do agree with as well? I think that's absolutely right. You know, so so if you were on the Remain side in the Brexit debate, you know, one thing you might have thought is that, look, there's no point going around saying that Brexit is going to cost every family in the UK £4,000 because that's a bullshit figure. Um, I mean, you might think that, you know, leaving the EU is a bad idea, but don't defend that on the basis of a bullshit figure. I mean, not least because, of course, in the end, these figures get found out and they're shown to be bullshit. They're shown to be bogus and that can be extremely harmful for one's own cause. So I think there are actually very good pragmatic reasons for scrutinizing one's own arguments or arguments that are put forward by people one agrees with to make sure that these arguments don't display the same failings that one accuses one's opponents of displaying. And therein lies tip number three. A little bit of strategic introspection can go a long way. So what I think is really important here is basic kind of critical thinking skills, which I think in the past, certainly in the UK, we've kind of just assumed that if someone's intelligent and educated, they kind of have good critical thinking skills. So it hasn't really been taught very systematically within the British education system. And I'm not sure if it's the same in Australia, but I know for certain that it's the same in, in the US. So it is kind of a does seem to be a kind of global problem for lots of countries. So that's things like interrogating your assumptions of your argument, 
and kind of looking, you know, basic things like trying to actively look for the reasons why you might be wrong and for the alternative explanations rather than the explanation that you're just giving for this kind of apparent link or, or apparent claim. You know, all of these things also just a, even a basic kind of understanding of statistics that you'd hope would come with having a high IQ, but actually lots of people forget after they leave school. You know, all of these things that help you to in- interrogate data, to interrogate claims and to kind of understand the evidence in front of you. I think those are the things that we should be kind of really emphasizing in education and making sure that people really leave school with those skills fully developed. I mean, that's why I do feel quite optimistic because I think like psychologists now have made such huge leaps in understanding the importance of this. And I think it is trickling down into education. But I think the the important point here is that it's much better to kind of teach people how to think for themselves so they can come to these conclusions themselves. It's like if people lack those critical thinking skills and then they're exposed to misinformation, then correcting that misinformation is a really difficult job because once they've latched onto it, they don't want to let it go. It kind of becomes part of their worldview. But if you, you teach the critical thinking skills early on, then people are kind of immunized to the fake news and misinformation. They're, they're just more sophisticated thinkers that can analyze the evidence for themselves. And, and it means we're not always playing kind of catch up, trying to kind of put out all of these fires because they wouldn't start spreading in the first place. Putting education to the side, a lot of the services that we use, a lot of the social media that we use encourages us not to think though, doesn't it? It encourages us to rely on automation, on artificial intelligence, on machine learning to make the decisions for us. Is that an impediment in terms of teaching people to think more critically in future? Yeah, I think it is. And I think even if you look at, you know, something like Twitter, you know, it has its algorithm that kind of creates this kind of bubble of information that, you know, it kind of knows what we like, and then it feeds us more of what we like. That in itself is a problem. But I think also with social media, it's kind of gamified the sharing of news a little bit. So there's this wonderful study by Gordon Pennycooker, who's a researcher in Canada. He gave his participants lots of fake news headlines and first asked them if they would share it and then asked them if they think it's actually accurate or true. And he found that they were actually more likely to share an article that kind of fit with their worldview, even if upon a bit of reflection, they realised it wasn't true. And that's because like, you know what's going to appeal to your followers and you know what's going to get lots of likes. And often we reflexively shared that content without even considering whether there's any accuracy in it. And he actually found just a small prompt just asking the people that simple question, like, is this true, before they had a chance to share that information. Then that actually did help them to be a a bit more discerning about what kind of claims they were spreading there. So I think we do need some kind of technological changes, and it could just be as simple as these small nudges that just get people to think before they share, really. I think part of the problem is that we live in a kind of media and communication environment in which speed is off the essence. There is no time. I mean, there is time in this conversation that we're we're having now, but very often there's no time to really develop a point and to explain one's thinking in a kind of considered way. So, I mean, leaving aside Twitter, I mean, you know, the average radio interview is going to last, you know, with a news channel is going to last two or three minutes. There's just no room to say, well, it's complicated. That's just not what presenters want to hear. They want a quick, clear, decisive answer. And I think that encourages some of these negative traits that I've just been discussing. I mean, I think, you know, what we need is to learn to think slowly. We're living in a media and communication environment in which slow thinking is just not 
acceptable. It's not done. And this is what results in the sort of sorts of oversimplification, distortions and bullshit that we're now all so familiar with. Are we too quick to judge others? I know in the case of, say, the election of Donald Trump, many people, you know, suggested that anybody who would vote for Donald Trump, you know, had to be stupid or had to be an idiot or backward or redneck or that kind of thing. But we've had numerous commentators on the program who've at various times pointed out that, you know, some of the people who voted for Trump had had very clear and well-founded economic reasons for voting for him or political reasons. So we sometimes too quick to label others that we disagree without thinking about what influences you know there might be on their their way of thinking yeah and i think the trump example is a really good one a lot of people who voted for trump were essentially victims of globalization and it's it's not at all obvious that it was irrational for them to vote for him i think there's a kind of deeper problem here which is that we're living in an era when people are actually quite happy to go around accusing their fellow citizens of irrationality or stupidity or incompetence. And this creates a very bad political atmosphere. It creates political polarization, and it can also result in terrible you know, misjudgments. So I think people on the liberal side of politics in the US, because they thought that you'd have to be really stupid to vote for Trump, completely underestimated how many people would vote for him in the 2016 election. And that's why they were completely blindsided by the results of that election. Instead of starting off from the assumption that people are irrational or stupid, I think it actually makes more sense to look at, you know, well, why would somebody want to vote that way? Why would somebody believe these things? Now, of course, in some cases, these beliefs and decisions that people make are genuinely indefensible. But even in those cases, there's usually some kind of rationale, some sort of basis for the decisions and judgments that they make. And, you know, that's the challenge to actually try and figure out what they are and not just jump to the conclusion that everyone else is an idiot. Tip number four. It's not always the voter. Sometimes it's the system, stupid. The premise of this idea of rational ignorance is that people tend to pay attention to things that they believe they can influence. And so that's why they focus on things like family and work, sporting clubs that they belong to, because they think that their actions can actually directly influence what's going on in those areas. Sam Rogovine from the Lowy Institute. You only have so much attention you can devote to any one topic in a given day. So it makes perfect sense that you don't dole out that attention to issues where you can have no influence. So Australians sometimes bemoan the fact that their fellow citizens know too little about the intricacies of public policy or national politics. But I think it can be explained, a lot of that ignorance can be explained by the fact that people tend to dole out their attention sparingly and they tend to focus most on areas where they think they can have an influence. And of course, national politics, even state politics, is very far away for most people and their vote, their one single vote out of many hundreds of thousands or millions, only has a very small influence. And when it comes to our political system and political parties, The political parties over decades have been removing people, ordinary people, from the the process, from the party process, haven't they? So is it any surprise that people are disillusioned and feel as though they are not being included in the politics of a nation? 
Right. So this is, I think, the big kind of secular trend of the last, let's say, 70 years, the post-war era, that in every Western democracy, the big centre-right and centre-left political parties have gone into decline, which is to say that almost without exception, as far as I'm aware, those big parties have lost members and are also losing vote share. And they have ceased to become mass movements where they are sustained by the work and also the funding of a large block of the public and have instead become very small, highly professionalised operations, which really only need the public at election time. And that has, I think, had a pretty insidious effect on democracy here and all around the Western world. It has created essentially a, a permanent political class, which for all intents and purposes, is is separated from the public. And how does that help us explain unexpected developments or what, what, is, what have been seen to be unexpected political developments like Brexit and like the election of Donald Trump, say? Yeah, so the, the key argument that I've been making for several years is that if you think that things like Brexit and Trump and so on and, and the rise of right-wing parties in Europe, if you think that that is explained by the radicalisation of the public, that voters around the Western world are becoming more right-wing and more nationalist and so on, then I think you're looking in the wrong place because actually the evidence is pretty thin for that. The much more convincing explanation to me is that the public has simply drifted away from the major parties, and that in some cases, right-wingers and nationalists have become the temporary beneficiaries of that, but that's by no means the long-term trend. So people are looking for what? They're looking for inclusion. They're looking for a political process that they actually feel as though they have some sort of influence over or in. I think it's more inchoate than that. I think what they've decided is that the present system simply doesn't work. Protesters, everything from Arab Spring movement in in 2011 to Black Lives Matters to Brexit to the electoral convulsions in Western Europe, one thing they all have in common is a sense of nihilism, a sense that they know what they're against and they know what they want to tear down, but there's not much sense of what they want to build up. And the response from the established political parties to this phenomenon isn't to look inward, is it? It's actually to look back at the public and think that they are just ignorant or that they're gullible. Right. So the established narrative at the moment among the political class in all Western countries, including in Australia, is that the public is becoming radicalised. And so that's why you see so much interest in, you know, trying to educate the public against fake news, putting the threat of conspiracy theories at the centre of politics. To me, the subtext of that narrative is that the public is gullible and the public has been fooled by the right wing particularly by the right wing, although some would argue that the radical left is doing some of the work as well. But what I think that misses is the fact that the political establishment, the political class, actually has some questions to answer of its own. And the key one for me is that they have essentially, as a slow journey over the post-war period, have drifted away from the public. And they are loath, really, to re-establish connections with the public because the system that they have created over that post-war period, you know, essentially works for them. It keeps them in place. I mean, in Australia, for instance, we have a very stable political duopoly, which works pretty well for both sides. And it has to be said, works reasonably well for Australians as well. But what the political class above all does not want is any large-scale interference with that comfortable duopoly. Sam Rogovine, and you're listening to Future Tense, an ABC Radio National production. I'm Anthony Fennell.
And our question today is, is dumbness our destiny? In a world saturated with information, why do smart people make dumb decisions and what do we need to ensure a smarter future? From politics now to the workplace and our final tip, tip number five. Before criticising others, reflect sometimes on if and how you contribute to the cycle of stupidity. And not only do we have another guest, we have another idea to explore. Functional stupidity. Professor Mats Alverson is from Lund University in Sweden and he's an expert on organisational idiocy, where buzz phrases and supposedly innovative ideas take hold in a firm or organisation, even though almost Everybody agrees, to borrow Harry Frankfurt's terminology, that they're bullshit. Mats Alverson. People are sometimes quite disinclined to think outside the job descriptions, uh, hierarchical position. So a lot of people engage in rather meaningless meetings. They work with policies and value statements that doesn't really make sense and nobody takes seriously outside these particular situations where people are very busy, engaged and believing in all this. But very few people with some critical distance actually take this very seriously. So it's very common. You've identified four main ways that people submit to stupidity in the workplace. Could I get you to take us through those? One is authoritarianism. The boss is right. You are very inclined to take a follow-up position in relationship to, to leadership and management. The second is that you adapt to your position in an organization. You don't think outside your hierarchical position or you're part of the division of labor. Third is that you tend to agree with people around you. It's troublesome in the morning to think for yourself, so it's much easier just to follow what others are doing. Often it's a matter of cultures that you just accept and reproduce. And people are often easily seduced. So this is formulated in a nice way, and then you just buy into this and, and too easily persuaded about what sounds good. And we're not talking about ignorance here, are we? People involved in functional stupidity aren't idiots necessarily, are they? No, and that is where the functional part comes in. So normally you are reasonably competent, you do things in the correct way, you can be very intelligent, but still be caught in this rather narrow mood of thinking and, and not thinking much outside that. So uh, competence and intelligence is often fully compatible with functional stupidity. So why does it occur and why does it, if, if you say it's very common, why? Well, things are a bit complicated and ambiguous and in organisations there are a lot of people, there are a lot of functions, few people they have overview. It's much easier than to stick to your um, knittings or stick to what you're expected to do. You don't upset anybody. The social machinery, it moves on. Uh, so uh, it's much easier for most people if they do their things, do as they're told, they follow tradition and uh, don't uh, rub the circles of, of the organisational machinery. Functional stupidity is more common in, in larger organisations than in, in very small ones. At its worst, how damaging can it be to an organisation or a business? In one sense, it makes organisations often function reasonably well. 
because there is this functional part and then at least order obedience sense of kind of structure and reduce stress i mean it's very stressful if people were forced to think too much for themselves so it is functional and sometimes that element is more important than the damaging parts but but often you have an excess of functional stupidity. And that means that an enormous waste of time and resources. People become a bit alienated. Sometimes they behave almost like zombies at workplaces. And it's very difficult often to see clear signs of things going in an entirely wrong direction because people are not uh, capable of seeing problems or not inclined to speak up. So there are two problems. One is then a lot of waste of time and energy and resources. And the second is that there may be really great problems, disasters coming up, but if people are caught in a narrow logic and are not inclined to consider their assumptions or engage in more wider outlooks, asking critical questions such as what are we doing here or even what in hell are we up to? So functional stupidity can be a source of enormous problems for organisations. And as for our original question, is dumbness our destiny? I guess the only clear answer is it doesn't have to be. We heard today from Mats Alverson, author of The Stupidity Paradox, Sam Rogovin from the Lowy Institute, philosopher Kasim Kassam, and David Robson, author of The Intelligence Trap. Karen Savanovitz is my co-producer here at Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.